Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on the role of real-world data in the development of remdesivir. This is from the 2022 DFARM Conference. For more information about the DFARM Conference, our editorial podcasts and webinars, please visit dfarmconference.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Thank you, Cindy, and good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be back here at DFARM, uh, even if it's a live remote event. Uh, so I'm Hassan Kadim. I'm with Bristol Myers Squibb, and uh, I am uh, I lead a group at BMS called Business Clinical Trial Business Capabilities in Clinical Operations. Uh, I will be moderating today's session uh, with our friends Anand Chakalingam and Matt Bryant. Uh, who will come and talk to us about the story of remdesivir and take us back to the early days of the pandemic. Uh, but before we do that, let me give them a chance to introduce themselves. So Anand, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hey, Hassan. Thanks very much. Um, I'm Anand Chakalingam. I'm the executive director uh, and head of uh, virology TA, real-world evidence at Gilead Sciences. Thank you. Hi, I'm uh, Matt Bryant. I'm the head of technology and innovation. Um, here at Gilead Sciences. Great, welcome both of you, and it's great to have you, and hopefully we can connect in person the next time we have, we are at DFARM in 2022. Um, so without further ado, let's, let's talk about uh, the, the topic at hand that we are here to discuss. Um, take you back to the early days of the pandemic, um, January 2020, when COVID-19 suddenly becomes a thing and everybody's uncertain about how it's progressing and slowly with the, the weeks we see how infections are arising and I remember in March 2020 we were uh, early March 2020 we were sitting in a restaurant in New York and with other pharmaceutical executives and realized how uncomfortable uh, the situation had become um, and a week later everything shut down and became a real threat here in the U.S. and, and at the time we were following the news Many people were getting infected. Everybody was looking for a solution for some form of treatment. And there were many different theories, uh, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. And as many in the industry, we were all following uh, the, the situation to see what can we do? How can we help improve the situation? And I remember um, there was a post on LinkedIn back in March 2020 for a caregiver that was looking for a treatment for uh, their relative, and somehow they had stumbled upon remdesivir um, and thought it could help. And they were pleading for help from pharmaceutical executives to um, uh, see if Gilead would provide access to remdesivir as an experimental treatment for COVID-19. Um, and finally, months later, remdesivir was the only was approved for COVID-19 and has become really the only treatment. Um, so before we, we get into the details of this whole story, uh, I wanna ask you first to tell me a little bit about the story from Desivir prior to COVID-19 and how it got started. Sure, Matt, shall I jump in? Yeah, sure. Sure, well, uh, Remdesivir is a, it's, it's a, Gilead has a long history of, of work in the antiviral space. Uh, and Remdesivir was originally one of the candidates that we had for hepatitis C uh, a, a long time ago, but because of its oral formula, because of its IV formulation, it was thought to not be a, the ideal candidate for hepatitis C. 
it's a uh, it's a prodrug of a uh, an RNA dependent uh, polymerase inhibitor, um, and we have known for a long time that it has pretty broad spectrum antiviral activity against a number of viruses, uh, like filoviruses like Ebola, uh, as well as coronaviruses like SARS-CoV-1, I guess if we call it that, SARS-CoV, uh, as well as uh, MERS. So uh, it became pretty clear that uh, when the pandemic hit, um, given that there is a high degree of sequence homology between the polymerase uh, in, in SARS-CoV-2 and SARS-CoV-1, that, that uh, remdesivir might have some activity there. Um, and we had pretty strong data indicating potent antiviral activity, uh, both against uh, in, in vitro and in vivo against SARS-1 and, and MERS, but also because of the activity of the studies that we had ongoing uh, in Ebola during the uh, uh, outbreak uh, in Africa earlier in the previous few years, um, we had a pretty healthy safety database uh, for, uh, for remdesivir in patients with acute Ebola um, virus, as well as in healthy volunteers. So that was a really strong starting place from which to, to get moving uh, quickly. Thanks, Anand. And, and clearly with the urgency of the pandemic at the time, uh, the lack of an approved treatment for COVID-19 had created intense urgency to speed potential therapies to physicians and patients desperate for options. Tell us how, uh, how was the link made with remdesivir and COVID-19 and how did uh, Gilead undergo this journey? Well, um, you know, the, the first case of, of COVID, you know, was reported in, 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 we didn't know it was COVID back at the end of December 2019. Um, but by, uh, by the beginning of January, a novel coronavirus was established by the China CDC um, and we had interactions with, with many different players around the globe as, as, uh, as, as this started to take off, um, uh, including with, with investigators at NIAD, including with investigators uh, in, in China, um, to see if we could quickly apply uh, remdesivir as, a, uh, a, as an investigational drug for COVID-19. Um, and this, again, is based on the, the homology, the, the, what was known about uh, remdesivir and its antiviral activity. Um, so we uh, started to work with uh, investigators, both the NIAID and the CDC and the China CDC, uh, to support studies of remdesivir, uh, you know, uh, in, in a placebo-controlled uh, setting. Um, we had a, a number of other studies were ongoing at the same were initiated at or around the same time, um, but yeah, it, it was it was a pretty dire time. There was a lot of activity. I think we were getting a lot of requests. Uh, for compassionate use from Desivir from all over the globe. Uh, and really the question uh, was whether or not Remdesivir really did have activity and, and was it effective against COVID-19? And we wanted to know that answer as quickly as possible. Yeah. Go ahead, Matt. Pranin, the, so that first patient treated in the U.S. was a compassionate use patient, yeah. right? Yeah, that was uh, the first patient in the U.S. was treated uh, uh, in um, up in uh, Seattle, Washington, at the end of January. Yeah, and and I I know at that time in particular there was an exponential increase suddenly in compassionate use requests for emergency access to remdesivir without necessarily having uh, a full. Uh, clinical trial results on its effectiveness uh, or not. And Gilead was faced with a choice. How do we deal with the exponential uh, and, and the high volume of requests while maintaining uh, the research to demonstrate the efficacy? Um, and so you, you, you had a big 
problems to solve and, and probably uh, needed alternative methods to figure out how and where remdesivir was used. So Matt, can you talk to us about some of the problems you were trying to solve and, and what uh, real world methods you utilized? Sure, sure. Well, um, there was a number of things when you think about that combination of you know clinical trials and compassionate use uh, support. Um, from a compassionate use perspective, uh, it broke our system, you know, literally overnight. Um, and so we were forced to, to stand up a portal that could sustain the number of requests that we were getting to be able to respond to them. Uh, and, and so subsequently, we uh, are continuing to evolve that system and process uh, so that we can sustain it for the future, should we have that, uh, hopefully not again. But um, that certainly has made a, a big change in, in how we handle our, our overall compassionate use program. Um, from a you know a clinical trial perspective, um, we had effectively you know one placebo-controlled study, and uh, we were waiting for the the readout of that um, in May or, or June. At that point in time, we weren't sure exactly when it would complete, but um, we were trying to get a sense of um, you know what was really happening in the real world and, and looking at more traditional approaches to uh, conducting a, a you know real-world data-based uh, study uh, by going directly to sites, right, globally, and trying to understand. Um, the use of, uh, uh, of, of remdesivir in the compassionate use setting. Uh, and then, so that really kind of triggered, well, what else could we do besides, you know, kind of that more traditional approach? And uh, that's where we really started to dial in uh, what data did we have. And um, at that point in time, Anand and I, I don't think we even knew each other. Um, I was relatively new to the company and um, was just trying to think differently, I guess, about how we might could access some of that data. And we really didn't have any access to, to near real-time, real-world data at that point. And so uh, fortunately, the company really mobilized to, to open some of that up so that we could get it and really understand the natural history of the disease and for rates of infection. Because again, you know, this is so early on, none of that was well understood. And we really didn't have any tools from CDC or, or Johns Hopkins was really just standing up at that point too. So we were trying to assess that ourselves. The government didn't have data um, as well. So we were having to try to source all of that independently, um, really understand hospitalization, various levels of oxygen support um, to inform you know, future study design and also just get an early read on the potential efficacy of the drug. And uh, so that was, that was pretty, um, pretty novel, I guess, for, for at least for Gilead at that point. And it certainly is, has changed the way we, we do things moving forward. Anna, did you have some other thoughts on the problems at that early stage? I think that summarizes it really well, Matt. I mean, it, I think that it's, it's important to recall, remember, like how, how crazy things were, um, how, how little was known, um, how everything was starting to shut down. We were hearing at one point, you know, my, my team was, was, you know, we were, we were talking, it was 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. And, you know, we just heard that, you know, 700 deaths had been reported in, in Italy, like in, in a single day. And it really got the fire going underneath us. And we were really, really seeking to try to find an answer to this, uh, to this question about effectiveness. And it wasn't just a question of, of, of like, you know, we knew the trials were going to read out. But, you know, when you're starting to hear about hundreds of deaths a day, or now thousands of deaths a day, and then more, um, you know, you, the, you, we we get into this 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 world of, of of pharma development really to make a difference, and we felt just utterly helpless. Uh, and so our our goal was to try to leverage every source of information we could to try to um, uh, to speed our own understanding and our own decision making, as well as to communicate with regulators as quickly as possible and have those conversations. And real world data 
uh, was you know real world data, as, as Matt said, by by working with other partners and and getting data sets in house by utilizing data from our compassionate use program, and then also looking at more traditional approaches like single arm studies and finding external comparators. Um, uh, that those were other ways that we were able to to start to get some of these answers early on, and and help ensure that you know, that we had all of our ducks lined up in a row here at Gilead. Um, so, you know, to ensure that, you know, again, the effectiveness being known, our senior management's uh, approval and backing, uh, which, and they've been fantastic. I mean, the, I, I've got to say that during COVID, uh, the fact that um, uh, not only I felt like Gilead came together, but I also felt like the entire scientific community came together. Uh, Matt, you can speak more to how a lot of our data partners uh, were really quick to, to change their practices to try to get better data, quicker data uh, to us. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to speak to that real quickly, um, you know, it, it, not only did many of us kind of stop what our day job was to all hands on deck to try to develop this drug, um, but our partners were, were definitely doing the same thing. And, and it was literally 24-7, it seemed at times where, you know, you would query them and, and we even opened up channels with them directly so that we could get information faster. And um, they were willing to, to bypass the normal process and, and agreements, right, in order to to show if they could help. And then and then certainly our company changed our processes as well and hoping those things will continue for the future. Uh, I, th I think um, we're seeing some examples of that happening, uh, but I'd like to see that scaled much more, um, you know, in a more fit for purpose kind of approach. Uh, but um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty phenomenal to kind of just be in that environment and that uh, with so many people willing to help as much as we were getting those same requests, Hassan, that you mentioned uh, through, through LinkedIn and other, social media channels uh, is overwhelming, I think, for everyone. But um, it's also nice to see everyone come together to try to solve the, the problem. Yeah, the, the story is worthy of, uh, of a book or a movie to be uh, uh, produced in, in later years. Um, but clearly, a ton of uncertainty, a lot of urgency, uh, a global phenomenon uh, with the pandemic. And you realize that maybe there's Maybe there's uh, potential effectiveness in remdesivir to support uh, recovery for some of the patients uh, for COVID-19. Uh, you, you talked about some real-world data approaches that you use to accelerate the understanding, authorization, and eventual approval of remdesivir. Can you dive into some of the details? Um, how did you employ some of these data strategies? Uh, how did they inform the understanding of the uh, uh, effectiveness of Fundesivir and how did it lead eventually to the submission to health authorities? And I can maybe start in with, uh, I think one of the first steps was really the compassionate use program. Uh, and and you know, this is, these are patients who were receiving Fundesivir under compassionate use. So all those requests that we're getting via LinkedIn or personal messages from all over the world. Um, uh, uh, you know, typically in a compassionate use program, you get a handful of requests, maybe a year, um, at one point, we were getting in excess of 300 a day, uh, and you know, bearing in mind that these are all single patient, single patient studies, effectively single patient protocols, um, it was a tremendous amount of work. Uh, uh, and 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 uh, these were for patients who were all mechanically ventilated for the most part by the end of the program. So they were patients whose situations were quite dire. So as Matt said, we did need to accelerate the way that we were processing and and, and bringing in patients this way. Uh, or, or, or allowing approvals uh, for, for, for compassionate use. But those data sets quickly became the, the largest numbers of treated patients with remdesivir. 
far in excess of the number of patients who would ever be enrolled in the clinical trials um, uh, that, that, were, that were ongoing at the time. So, um, uh, but those are patients who were treated. We didn't have a comparison group. So the first way that we leveraged real-world data was to try to utilize external comparators amongst patients who were in uh, EMR-based data sets that were getting refreshed Gosh, every week, every two weeks, Matt, that we, we got some pretty quick refreshes, which is really Yeah, cool. there, there was varying, you know, and so I would just say that some of our partners, you know, typically refresh probably closer to, on the more, you know, on the higher end of frequencies probably monthly. But um, uh, again, they were able to, to go specifically to sites where we felt outbreaks were occurring and refresh data on a more of a weekly basis. So that's just one example of the flexibility we saw. Yeah. So with, with that, we were able to help understand, like identifying cohorts of patients that were very similar to our compassionate use populations uh, and, and, and leveraging you know, real-world data methods, real-world evidence methods, uh, density score matching, et cetera, to ensure balance between the populations to help us understand in this very sick population that's primarily mechanically ventilated, what are the expected outcomes? What are the expected uh, 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 progression rates and, and mortality rates? Uh, in this population. So that was really the first phase of, of real-world data work that we had ongoing with these external comparators. And, and again, I guess that, you know, that freshness of that data was so critical as, you know, the, from the earliest days, there were no treatments. And then as mm -hmm. we're moving, right, uh, more, more evolved. And so it's like uh, hitting a, a moving target is the, the challenge continues to be to some degree, but uh, certainly was back then. And some of the other challenges that we had, again, this is a pandemic problem, but um, there was no ICD code for COVID-19. There were no codes for remdesivir. There were no, uh, there was not a clear sense as to what the right outcome was. I mean, the outcomes that we started looking at in the first trials were based on earlier studies of pneumonia. Um, but we've, as we've come to learn more about COVID-19, we see that it's more than just a pulmonary disease. Um, so this, this evolution and this, this uh, uh, need to be agile and work with what we have, but also be able to pivot as more gets known about the disease is really helpful and really a place where real world evidence tends to shine. Um, because, uh, you know, provided you can, you can rejigger your outcomes, um, uh, you end up with, with pretty large sample sizes that allow you to, to, to be more, uh, uh, to, to, to gather more information. It's very fascinating. Um, and, and it's interesting how the compassionate use program was the gateway to uh, uh, learning more about the need for remdesivir in this high pressure situation, high urgency situation. Matt, you mentioned that er early in, in the process, it broke your system. Uh, you mentioned that the system wasn't designed, the compassionate use portal or the system behind it was not designed to uh, undertake that much volume in a, in a short amount uh, of time. Um, can you talk about uh, how did you address that? Uh, was there a need to adapt the technology to accelerate the process of review and approval and distribution of all these compassionate use requests? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it was a simple web portal for the, the immediate stopgap, but um, uh, that could handle that volume. But, you know, it was also on our people. I think our people are really having a difficult time because as Anand described, it's it's effectively like writing a, a mini protocol, right, for each individual patient. And so I think just being able to adapt our process to be more flexible uh, was the biggest change, at least in the short term. And then over the long term, I think we're, we're certainly assessing a new 
new piece of technology now that uh, will hopefully help us uh, sustain that for the future. Yana, did you have any other experience with it? Or? Yeah, I think there's one other piece that I had. So like all of those are, are totally, um, I think that, that that's, it's, it's really hard to, to do this in, at scale. Um, each one is, is fairly high touch. Uh, but in addition, then the other piece that got added on afterwards, because we, our capacity use programs uh, were never really designed to collect data. Um, and so here we had patients who were very sick, um, who were you know, in large part mechanically ventilated, uh, for whom we're now asking their physicians to please enter data into an EDC system. Um, and uh, so that, that was certainly challenging, initiating and inserting an EDC layer into an ongoing compassionate use program without compromising care while still ensuring data integrity, mitigating bias, and ensuring that these really ill people, patients were able to get access to drug, usually within 24 hours of, of, the, of the request. Um, so that, that, was, that was really challenging. Um, and then of course, I mean, there, there, there's vivid, vivid stories that we have because as transportation got shut down all across Europe, um, you know, the depots that we had for, for getting drug, we would ordinarily just ship it out to, to, to patients, but there was no way that we were gonna get drug out to patients by air travel or by, by air. So we had uh, couriers literally like leaving the depot in Basel and driving pay, you know, drug to patient on a name patient basis uh, to, to locations all around Europe, particularly in Italy at the time. That was when the pandemic was really bad uh, in Italy. So this was a, that, that, that was a, a big part of what we're doing. And then the other aspect is collecting and continue to get data from patients, from their providers as the pandemic continued to worsen uh, and you know, cajoling and working with them to try to get data into the databases was also something that was was a challenge. Uh, but I, you know, the physicians were were outstanding. Uh, understood that the rationale, understood that we all needed to provide some information, and that that whatever they could enter about their patient, you know, who was you know acutely ill in front of them, uh, whatever they could glean was really really helpful. And uh, that's that's very, very fascinating, and we can expand on so many areas here, but I wanted to come back to the real-world-derived uh, insights um, as viewed by regulators. I, I can imagine back then in the pandemic, early in the pandemic, there wasn't a lot of submissions uh, for new treatments based almost uniquely uh, on real-world-derived insights. How was that viewed by the regulators? Was it challenging to get... Uh, that through, uh, despite the urgency of the pandemic? I can take a stab at that to start with, Matt. Um, uh, I think at that moment, I think everyone, it was like a desert. Everyone was really thirsty for information about anything that could be potentially useful. Um, so uh, regulators were very happy to hear from us with every bit of information that we had. A capacity use program's data is not usually the, the set of data that you want to go to a regulator with. But when it's the only information that's there, uh, the regulators were were very happy to hear from us uh, and encouraged to to you know were, were encouraged by the results that they saw, uh, and encouraged us to keep coming back as as the data sets grew larger. Um, uh, you know, in, in the end, the, the trials luckily read out earlier than had been originally planned, in part because the recruitments happened so much more quickly. Um, uh, but but uh, the. Regulators were willing to, to listen and hear it, and I think the, uh, the conversations that we had around real-world evidence and the methods uh, was, was you know, increasingly appreciated by uh, the regulators around the world. 
uh, in the end, though, it was the trials that 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 that, that put put us over the edge. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, the question I guess that might come up from some is, well, do you think that might change in the future based on that experience? Well, I, I, at least my answer might be, I hope so. Uh, I hope that regulators are, are a little more open now than perhaps they were before, and that's that's the intent. Uh, it's kind of like taking more shots on goal to see if you can change uh, the paradigm effectively. But uh, ultimately, as, as Anna said, the gold standard held true again, and that's what you we all strive for. But um, at the same time, I think it helped inform us uh, and our decision-making and, and our confidence level. Uh, so hopefully that ultimately accelerated development of the drug overall. I think and I add one more piece to that. I think once, um, you know, in, in a pandemic situation, uh, there there's, um, uh, you know, if you think back to some of the, the, the editorials that were in at the time, uh, very few people want to get randomized to a placebo. Conducting a placebo-controlled trial when a disease is so severe um, becomes very challenging to do. And certainly after the original Act One study conducted by NIAID read out, the idea of additional placebo-controlled trials of remdesivir starts to become less and less realistic. It's less ethical. Um, this is one argument that can be made. So that's, that's a point where... Um, the, you know, it's been heartening to hear uh, comments from regulators, uh, you know, around the world that there does need to be uh, an increased reliance on real-world evidence to help understand the effectiveness of drugs. Uh, you know, certainly, in, you know, after, after the original placebo-controlled trials come out. Yeah, and and clearly, COVID nineteen has been the pandemic has been an accelerator or a trigger for acceleration of a lot of uh, new approaches in drug development and clinical trials, and certainly an accelerator for other industries as well. Uh, I wonder how you have noticed the evolution of the thinking and the uh, processes uh, from the scientific community coming together around real-world evidence for COVID-19 and even post-COVID-19. Yeah, yeah, sure. I, um, you know, for from a Gilead perspective, um, you know, I, I kind of I came at a turning point in the company's history, as I've described it, because it felt like, you know, primarily a, a virology-based company, and, and Anna can, can certainly speak to that. And now it's, uh, you know, growing up into a larger biotech or biopharma and, um, you know, uh, delving into some of the more known uh, therapeutic areas like oncology. And our, our really kind of our awareness and, and engagement externally was somewhat limited at that point in time. And, um and so having, you know, external relationships uh, were, weren't really that common, but because of the pandemic, um, I think our, you know, chief medical officer helped us uh, really get more engaged in that community. And uh, an example of that was the COVID R&D Alliance, um, and subsequently the FDA-led Reagan Udall Foundation, and, and after that, ICOTA, and, you know, Data Accelerate. And so Gilead was not a member of Transcelerate, for example, where many of your sponsors here at this conference already have been and have been for a number of years. And so for us to be able to stand up, you know, an agreement in a, a really short period of time and be able to share our data, um, you know, patient level data and, and COVID-19, which it sounds like we were the first one to do that um, without a, a prior agreement in place uh, is even that much harder. So um, it was pretty, pretty neat to see the company come together and do do the right thing and start to take steps to be more open uh, and collaborative and and I think you know Anna can speak to the 
the work done and, and common methods with the Reagan Udall Foundation, uh, you know, just to show the mortality benefit in remdesivir. And, and I think those are the kinds of forums that we've got to have in order to really accelerate knowledge in this space and partnering with FDA uh, to build on the guidance that was initiated because, uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, that was a pretty thin uh, guidance uh, and, and probably still remains to be, uh, but it'd be nice to see that evolve faster than it would have otherwise. Anna, what, what do you think about all that? Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. I, I could just add a little more color to the Reagan-Udall group uh, is, is that, that there's, um, uh, you know, as, as the pandemic has evolved, this, this group has come together to, to really um, uh, work through definitions, you know, common definitions and methods uh, of, of outcomes, of, of covariates, of, of, uh, and of the exposures themselves to try to ensure, and, and the methods that are used to mitigate all the different biases that, that come through with real world evidence. Uh, and so it's, it's been a, a very interesting forum to talk through this and work through those kinds of issues. Uh, um, and, you know, when you, you get multiple teams with different disparate real world data data sets uh, together to talk through these issues, it's, it's amazing what you come up with, uh, both in terms of, of, of the challenges as well as solutions to those challenges. So those conversations need to happen. And it was really uh, gratifying to see that kind of come together. Uh, you know, in, in large part due to the, the scientific community's desire to, to come to some, you know, common, common ground uh, in light of the pandemic. Yeah, it's definitely uh, uh, interesting how things have evolved uh, uh, internally and externally with, with uh, uh, real-world data and reliance on real-world data evidence uh, for clinical development in general. Um, of course, the pandemic is at a different place from where it was in December 2019 or even in March 2020 when things really closed down and we've seen the peaks uh, come up and then uh, it, it goes down and the Delta variant uh, uh, evolution and, and we don't know what comes next. Uh, I wonder how this entire story has changed your approach at Gilead towards real world data. Has it uh, pushed uh, uh, more acceptance of leveraging the real-world data in other programs? Uh, has there been lessons learned that we change the clinical development paradigms internally, and how can we leverage those lessons across the industry? I think I, I can say that it's it's definitely changed uh, a bit of how we view real-world evidence, uh, certainly in the virology space. Uh, this, you know, it's very little um, our, our, the, the evidence of the use of real world evidence in the virology space, relatively speaking, is limited. I think in relative to oncology, for example, where there's a, a greater acceptance in large part driven by, I think, acceptance from the regulators. You know, I think if we, if we think about uh, what, 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 what gets, um, what drives acceptance within a pharma company, it's, it's seeing what the regulators will, will also uh, uh, join forces on and try to help uh, understand. So, um, it's, it's expanded our use of real-world evidence, uh, certainly for virology, uh, and it's, there's a, a great deal of, of, of uh, potential for oncology as well. But it's, it's uh, helped us create structures around how we'll bring real-world evidence into different phases of the development cycle. Uh, you know, moving real-world evidence away from more of a post-authorization sort of uh, proposal or pr prospect to the, to the preclinical phase and the clinical phase of work. The early clinical phase of work. So definitely it's had a major impact uh, in helping to open the eyes and have conversations around real world evidence here, here at Gilead. Uh, and, and I think, I mean, as I mentioned before, also more broadly across the community, scientific community, 
uh, is that we are now when we are faced with something as dire as COVID-19, recognizing that every source of information that we can have uh, that, that meets a certain quality threshold uh, needs to be considered. And that those sorts of methods and approaches are, are, are ones that, that real world evidence does contribute to. Yeah, just add, you know, real world data and evidence from my perspective when I first started uh, was really a part of the strategy from the beginning. And so just to see uh, so many opportunities was was almost overwhelming, but uh, it was also really gratifying to see the different functions come together, uh, you know, from commercial through development, you know, IGOR, um, obviously the, the epidemiology teams heavily engaged throughout that process, but uh, biomarkers, as, as Anna mentioned, was another space that some of the data sets and platforms that we stood up that didn't exist before, you know, those those functions really dove into it and are continuing to dive into it. And uh, I see it as a, a key component of our data science backend for how we design programs and studies uh, moving forward. I love this conversation. I, I can go on and ask you many other questions, but I want to turn to the audience and, and see if we can answer some of their questions. Um, so one question that I can see here is uh, practically how did you collaborate internally and externally with FDA partners? Uh, how did you need everyone to be in sync and what elements make sense to continue now? Well, I think one of the things that we did internally uh, is that we um, um, uh, we've put together a, a, a team, a cross-functional team around real-world evidence. Um, so there, you know, there, there's a real-world evidence group at Gilead, but there are also experts in real-world evidence and the different applications of it uh, uh, at, at different phases in the product lifecycle who come together. And so this is something I, I think that um, it helps to continue that going forward for other products. Um, that it's it's uh, uh, to help us understand where real world evidence can fit for any given question, regardless of the indication, regardless of the drug. Um, externally, I, I think how do we collaborate externally with the FDA uh, or with other regulators? That that was honestly that was just a conversation that, that the FDA was willing to have, that other regulators were willing to have uh, when there was so little known, uh, when when the the world was was waiting. Uh, for, for an answer on the potential of efficacy of remdesivir, uh, there was a willingness on, 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 from multiple parties to, to hear whatever we were able to put together and to, honestly to also to help pave the way for us uh, to put that information together and, 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 and integrate it. So uh, I think, uh, you know, I don't, with any luck, we won't have such horrible pandemics you know, like every, every few years, but I will say that that the idea that people collaborating and, and, and starting to speak a similar language around real world evidence has been one of the most gratifying things to come out of this, both within our organization, uh, with our partners, uh, and, and also uh, in conversations that are happening in the literature and with regulators. That conversation allows us to, to proceed more confidently, utilizing real world evidence to try to answer questions. Uh, if if you know, the, the work that we do, if, if, if there doesn't seem to be an audience for it, it's harder to put that out there. So hearing, seeing that audience is there uh, and that the uh, there's an expectation for rigor in what we do is, is really helpful. The only thing I might add to that is that, um, you know, just uh, you know, as we've talked about with the Compassionate Use Program, really, you know, expanding that out uh, as a significant change. Um, and then, you know, some of the tactics that we used with 
how we engage with partners and with, with agencies, I think could be built on, you know, just, I'm not sure Luke who asked the question, if you're thinking about, you know, just some of the technology, but you know, some of the, the shared documents uh, for example, or, or some of the collaboration tools that we use uh, or opened up to third parties and uh, continue to be open uh, Now, whether we can scale that <laughs> remains to be seen. Cause I, I do see continued resistance and, um, you know, habits of, of going back to the way we were before. And so I, I think that's something that um, we're, we're constantly battling and, and uh, won't accept. Um, and so we're going to, we're going to keep fighting that so that we can keep those channels alive. Yeah. Great question. And, and if there are any other questions from the audience, we'd love to have them and, and make sure we answer everyone. Um, in the meantime, I will ask another question myself. Uh, and it's also around technology. Uh, I think, Anand, I really liked how, how you said that the one of the main lessons that came out of this entire story is leveraging real-world data earlier than post-marketing. Um, and I wonder if that has, uh, if any one of you can share whether this has uh, impacted or uh, triggered a need to look at your clinical development technology stack in general and how that changes the paradigms from a technology perspective to integrate real-world data earlier than it was before. Matt, I think you should take a first stab at this. This is right up your alley. Yeah, yeah Hassan. I, uh, I mean, uh, without you know sharing the full details here, we're still uh, in build mode. I'd say, uh, short of having you know many of those things in place, uh, we kind of took a more of a managed service approach in order to be able to stand up some what I call kind of foundational capabilities. And then now we're in the process of starting to uh, define what core competencies are and then building some of that technology in-house uh, and then partnering. I think it's still gonna be a, a partnered hybrid approach uh, at the end of the day, because uh, I think that's what's more scalable and uh, you know where Gilead's gonna sit with it most likely, but um, I'm not sure if I've answered enough detail for what you're thinking there, but um, yeah, we've seen a number of programs and studies that have uh, I've personally provided a lot of data for that have informed decisions about whether we're going to move forward with, with an asset or not. And so uh, that's pretty exciting. And uh, we're right on the cusp, I think, of just building a, you know, a design capability so that we take the time needed in order to do the proper modeling and incorporation of a lot of the things that this conference is about, uh, right, and, and really solving for the problem at hand and building an experience that the patient really wants. And so uh, that's that's what we're, we're in the process of standing up uh, right now. Awesome. Um, and I know we have two minutes left. So uh, with questions from the audience, I'll throw one last to each one of you. Uh, if you can summarize maybe in, in a sentence or, or two, uh, what have you learned personally from this entire situation uh, and how has it changed your perspective in the work that, that we do uh, in the pharmaceutical industry? Want to go first, Matt? <laughs> One sentence, high pressure. That's it. Uh, uh, why don't you go ahead? I'll, I'll think about it. I... <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think for me, real-world evidence has, uh, has a bright future. Like this experience has taught me that real-world evidence at Gilead and throughout the antiviral space and, and more broadly has, has a bright future, um, not only in the preclinical phase, but also um, uh, with, with, um, uh, with all of our post-authorization work, understanding, you know, the, the, we've had 
study design questions that real world evidence has answered has helped us answer. We've had you know, these these basic effectiveness questions answered. We've had more 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 proximal, more more later stage effectiveness questions, and then long term outcomes, uh, which which I think are are some of the traditional aspects of real world evidence. Um, but I, I feel like I'm, I'm I'm incredibly heartened by what I've seen. Uh, and uh, I, I think this has opened opened up, a, I don't want to say a Pandora's box because that's a negative, or, but, a, but a positive Pandora's box in terms of what can happen uh, with real world data with an organization such as ours. So that's that's more than one sentence, but apologies, Matt. Yeah, I'll just say uh, I'm just humbled by the overall experience and, and grateful to you know be able to help uh, contribute. So. Excellent. On that note, thank you both to Anand and, and Matt for uh, a great story, a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and we return back to Cindy. For more information about the DFARM conference, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit dfarmconference.com, and that's D-P-H-A-R-M conference.com. Thank you, and we hope you enjoyed the podcast.